at this uh, scripture passage in a little bit, but before doing that, I'm going to share a little bit about um, some ways by which we might, thinking, might think about approaching uh, how we uh, hear Jesus and his story to us. So to that end, let's uh, pray again. Let's pray. Thanks, oh God, for your grace and your mercy and your peace. And we thank you, Lord, for moments such as these that perhaps by your spirit, you might open us up to hear a word, a fresh word, a new word, a changing word, so that we can perhaps move off the dime. Maybe there are some of us who are here today who feel like they're stuck or feel like they don't know what the next chapter is supposed to be. And so we pray that by your grace, this word will perhaps open up a window that we might see something a little bit more clearly and that we might live a little bit more near to who you are, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I have uh, twice had the opportunity to tour the battlefields and beaches of Normandy, France, the scene of perhaps the greatest naval and air invasion in the history of warfare. The Normandy invasion begun on June 6, 1944, D-Day. Everybody hear about D-Day? Is that, is that familiar? Okay. If not, then you got to go back to history in high school. So, but it was the turning point of World War II, and every stop in Normandy is this overwhelming experience and the, of, of the scale of human sacrifice laid upon the beaches and within the hedgerows of that region. It's very humbling. And one cannot walk away without a profound sense of gratitude for what price has been paid for the freedoms that we so casually enjoy. And perhaps one of the most impressive things about touring Normandy is to see the remnants of the extensive and intricate fortifications of defense laid out by Field Marshal Rommel and the German army. Miles and miles and miles in every direction, the Germans built bunker after bunker, gun encasement after gun encasement, cement fortresses from which to repel the Allied advance. Years it took to construct this concrete line of defense only to have it overrun in a matter of several hours by the Allied armada that had come to shore and pushed ahead. Today in Normandy, you have the chance to walk within and around these German strongholds and fortifications and to feel how desperate the Nazis were to hold on to this land from which they had stolen from free peoples. One of my visits in walking the bluffs at Omaha Beach, I took the chance to stand where once a German soldier stood in a small machine gun bunker with a perfect view out onto the English Channel and imagine what must have gone through his mind when early on the sixth day of June, he saw appear out of the mist the Allied invasion of some 500,000 soldiers. It isn't always good to be in a defensive posture. And it got me to thinking about being on the defensive. And I began to wonder about what lines of defense that maybe I have managed to put into my life and to put around me. What, what territory had I claimed in my mind, heart, and soul that I was now outlining with bunkers and encasements such as to prevent the invasion of some outside force? It's one of the things that goes along with being a human being, isn't it? We have this propensity of being defensive. Ever since we were young, we, we kind of put ourselves on the defense. When I was a, a little boy, my little gang of friends used to play war, and, and war was about all, you know, protecting your turf. 
And, and when you were young, you remember when your mom or dad caught you doing something that you weren't supposed to be doing. And were you not somewhat instinctive by going on the defense to make an excuse, to deny culpability, to explain why you had to do it, or to show that you weren't the one who started it? I think the older we get, the more defensive we get. Each year brings a little more solidification in the things that we believe and the things that we hold opinions about, and we claim our turf in mind, heart, and soul, and we build our bunkers, and we mount our guns, and we establish our lines of defense around all those things we have claimed. We have our political defenses, we have our theological defenses, we have our emotional defenses, our spiritual defenses, our relational defenses, we have our intellectual defenses, and we fortify ourselves against whatever outside forces there may be offshore that we wonder are trying to come and change us. I guess that's why they say never bring up religion and politics in polite conversation, because that's when people get defensive. And that's when people sometimes go on the offense, and it has a way of spoiling a really good dinner party. <laughs> so being on the defensive, I suspect, is something good to have in mind when we open up our Bibles. Christians, and certainly Presbyterians, have for a long time believed that the Bible is the Word of God, that God is actually trying to speak through the Bible to us. God knows what God's trying to say. Likely, God is trying to tell us a bunch of different things because we all come from different places and we all have our different issues. There is perhaps a message intended just for us, but what might that be? We presuppose that God is trying to say to us something to us, so when we open up the Bible, what do you imagine is actually going to happen? What, will, what cat will come out of this bag? What, what horse is going to leave this barn? What, what force will be unleashed when we open up our Bibles? Do we expect, actually, when we open up our Bibles, that something is going to happen? Do you imagine some consequence of you opening up your Bible that might lead to some inalterable change in your life? Or do we kind of think the Bible is not that kind of book? The Bible is like the collected works of Shakespeare. A lovely sentiment, intriguing drama, compelling truths, but in the end, nothing there that's going to change me. A part of it has to go, I think, with the kinds of defenses we set up for ourselves. We may think and say that the Bible is a life-changing book, but unbeknownst to us, we have done so well with our defenses. We have constructed this impenetrable wall. We have built high this fortress that there isn't much chance that the invading force of Scripture is actually going to speak. So I wonder about that in preparing to read this Scripture lesson this morning. It's another one of Jesus' parables, and you've heard me say this before, the de definition of a parable is a story that is being told about you, but it takes a while for you to figure out what about you is being told. <laughs> another person said that parables are jokes about you, and sometimes it takes a while to figure out what part of you the joke is about. That's why Jesus tells these stories kind of like Presbyterian minister jokes. I think I've heard them all, and I laugh politely at them, and then I realize later that in each of them there's probably some truth about me. So Jesus starts this story, and he says this, there was a rich man 
Now, I can't tell you how many times I've read this story, and it did not dawn on me that, that the rich man was me. That the story was being pulled, told about that little part of me. Every time I read the story, I thought about all the other people that the story was about. You know, the people who made more money than me. And I imagined that Jesus was talking about them. And as a preacher, I needed to help them hear the story. And I built my defenses around my own wealth, erected my fortress around my financial affairs. I had somehow convinced myself that Jesus really couldn't be talking about me. And what I had done is I had repelled the invading force. Now, of course, the truth is, I, Steve McConnell, am one of the richest people in the world. And I did not win the lottery last night. I just happen to have a salary that is probably eight times the worldwide average. Eight times. So when Jesus starts his story and he says, there was a rich man. The truth is, the joke's about me. So, allow me to ask you, what might this story that I'm about to read be about you? What part of the story is about what part of you? So let's have a read. Luke chapter 16, beginning at the 19th verse. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who longed to satisfy his hunger with what fell even from the rich man's table. Even the dogs would come and lick his sores. Well, the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to be with Abraham. And the rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was being tormented, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side, and he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in agony in these flames. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your lifetime you received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner evil things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between you and us, a great chasm has been fixed so that those who might want to pass from here to you cannot do so, and no one can cross from there to us. And he said, well, then, Father, I beg you to send him to my father's house, for I, I have five brothers that he may warn them so that they will not also come into this place of torment. Abraham replied, well, they have Moses and the prophets. They should listen to them. And he said, oh, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. So it may be hitting a little close to home to tell us Floridians a story about a man living in a gated community. And it may be that fact alone that might make us wake up and hear the story. And I suppose it would be a big mistake for us to think that since I don't live in a gated community, this story has nothing for me. Full disclosure, I live in a gated community. The truth is, the rich man has got himself a defense. And it is a good enough defense for him not to consider the sick man outside his gate. 
And, and we hear the story and we say, what, what, what kind of man is this who would ignore this man right outside his gate? But you see, that's the thing about defenses. They have their way of keeping us from seeing what should be as plain as the nose on our face. So you can get yourself, for example, into a political argument these days. And you can be so defensive as to not see and hear within the conversation that actually that other person is talking a little bit of sense. She actually has a good point. God forbid you recognize that. I, I, got myself, <laughs> I got myself this week into a little texting theological argument. Note to self, texting theological arguments do not end well. <laughs> I don't think any texting argument ends well. So later, I scrolled back and got to look at the argument. That's the great thing about texting. You get to actually see what you said and you can't deny it. So I scrolled through the argument and I was so impressed with how little I was listening. How little I was listening. And how angry I grew as I scrolled through the text to discover that actually my debate partner was making a little bit of sense. He had something for me but I couldn't hear it over the wall I had built. So as we go to the gospel, we can imagine that maybe the gospel doesn't turn into good news until we let our defenses down enough to allow that armada of grace to come to shore. Martin McGinnis died this week. You probably read a little bit about Martin McGinnis this week. Martin McGinnis was, a, for quite a while, a leader in the Irish Republican Army. He likely conspired in many attacks against British Protestants back in the times called the Troubles. He was radical in his beliefs and deadly in the pursuit of them. And that's the first half of his story. The second half of his story is that Martin McGinnis served in 1998 as one of the key peace brokers in the Good Friday peace agreement between the Irish and the British that for the most part put an end to the troubles of which he among many had been an instigator. Radical terrorist, peace broker, and somewhere in between some invading force penetrated. Few knew what, few knew when, but somehow the defenses went down enough and this man allowed himself to be changed and a greater good came as a result. The New Testament pulls no punches when it tells us of a religious terrorist, let's call him that, a religious terrorist named Saul, who rounded up early Christians, got them jailed, and sometimes killed them. This was one bad dude. But somewhere along the way, the defenses went down, the voice got heard, and the light got in. And terrorist Saul became Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, an author of nearly half the New Testament. C.S. Lewis spent the first 30 years of his life defending himself against the possibility of the existence of God 
But little by little, book by book, friend by friend, the defenses went down enough for him to consider actually the possibility that there was a God. And then in his autobiography, Surprised by Joy, he writes, you must picture me alone in that room in Maudlin College, night after night, feeling whenever my mind lifted even for a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him whom I so earnestly desired not to meet. That which I greatly feared had last come upon me. In the Trinity term of 1929, I gave in and admitted that God was God and knelt and prayed, perhaps that night the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England. So here's the question. And I'm wondering if it can get past your defenses. Is there any chance that you are resisting the invading force of grace? Is there some change that God might have in store for you, some life that he wants to give you, but you are holding on to whatever it is that you're holding on to and you don't have a hand free? Is it possible that for that rich man in the purple robes, that the invading force of grace was actually the poor man at his gate? And if only he had let him in, if only he had seen that there was some eternal connection between he and that man, he would have found perhaps the glory of God. Lewis later writes, there are only two kinds of people, those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. Is it possible in Jesus' parable that the rich man looked inside the defensiveness, was locked inside the defensiveness of his gates, and by doing so had already chosen his hell. Thinking that he had arrived, he had arrived at a dead end. He had grown content in his own pleasure. He had created his own righteousness, his own line of defense. So remember that story by Flannery O'Connor. It's a story called Revelation. And it's about this southern woman, Mrs. Turpin, who has a pretty clear view of everybody else's faults. I know that you don't know anybody like that. Has a clear, pretty clear view of everybody else's faults, and she's got the spiritual gift of judging how good or not good her friends are, her neighbors are, her enemies are. It is her defensive measure to keep secure her own prejudices. It is this outer shell that she puts up to protect herself. And at the end of the story, she has this vision of a line of people going up to heaven, this line of people making their way up to heaven as if climbing Jacob's ladder. And she sees at the beginning of this line of people going to heaven, all those people she never dreamed were going to go to heaven. All those people who were within her prejudices. And then she sees, as she sees all these people at the front of the line making their way into heaven, she sees at the end of the line, as of the last to get in, people such as herself who believed like she believed and who acted like she acted. And then O'Connor writes, they were marching behind the others with great dignity, accountable as they had always been for good order and common sense and respectable behavior. They alone were on key. Yet she could see by their shocked and altered faces that even their virtues were being burned away. Even their virtues were being burned away. 
So I wonder about my defenses. I wonder about all those barriers I put up to the grace of God. I wonder about my wealth. I wonder about my trappings of self-sufficiency. I wonder about all those self-perceived virtues that need to be burned away. My fortresses of lifestyle and opinion that need to be surrendered. I'm wondering about the gates I lock myself into, the defenses that keep out the poor, those people to whom I am by virtue of this parable eternally linked. Because the truth is, the truth is, when we look at that cross, the truth is, the armada of grace is making its way to shore making its way to shore in Jesus Christ. He has come to capture me, and he's come to capture you. All of me and all of you. And isn't it time to lay down our arms? Isn't it time to step out of our bunkers and surrender. Let us pray. Lord, we uh, confess to you how often it is that we build these walls and we erect these defenses around our opinions and our thoughts and our feelings. And we have this great way of walling out people that disagree with us, walling out people that look different than us, walling out people who perhaps have not been as fortunate as us. We are grateful, Lord, that you are a God of grace who's never, never completes his invasion. You continue to bring wave and wave upon the shore of our lives, and we pray that you will open us, that you will somehow find that crack, break us open so that grace can pour in, and that we can begin to see the world in a different way. We can begin to hear people in a different way, and that we can wonder if each and every person in our life has a gift for us, and that when we receive it, we receive your grace. So bless us, Lord, as we wonder about these things in these days to come. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.